dun 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 Despite the Death Star blowing up, the Empire are still hot on the heels of the Rebel Alliance. Luke Skywalker is compelled by advice from a ghostly voice of his old master to seek out the Jedi Master known as Yoda to learn how to be a Jedi Knight. Romance, comedy, and a whole lot of doom, it is the greatest movie ever made. This is Star Wars Episode V, The Empire Strikes Back. Welcome to Star Wars Week and to quite possibly, as we said last time, the most important film trilogy of all time. And this is the best entry into that trilogy, I feel. Not that I want to give the game away straight away, but like many people, The Empire Strikes Back, or otherwise known as Star Wars The Empire Strikes Back Episode 5, is everyone's favourite movie. For very good reasons. It is a stellar example of filmmaking literally contains the best and most original plot twist in cinema history, has one of the best weighty, iconic fights of all time, has some of the best cinematography when it comes to expressing emotion and fear. I can't praise this movie any higher to what people have already heard. Believe the hype about Empire Strikes Back if you haven't seen it. It is the best movie ever made. As I close yesterday's episode with... Objectively speaking, this is the greatest movie ever made. Now, we know that your favourite movie is, in fact, not this movie. This is your second favourite movie. This is my second favourite movie of your time. Jurassic Park is a little bit more personal why I put it at number one. But again, I cannot objectively say that Jurassic Park is better than The Empire Strikes Back. It's close, but this is probably the greatest movie ever made. If you're going by textbook or a checklist type of deal... This is the best movie. It's ever like made. when I, because obviously it's number one in my favorite movies because it is the best movie ever made. Yep. But like even when you consider other lists that we make, like best cinema going experience, best scene, etc., etc. Given that we weren't alive when this was originally released, it is my best cinema going experience. That's that that belongs to the Avengers. But can I say that the Avengers is a better movie than Empire Strikes Back? No. Can I say that like other art house movies that I had to enjoy as a student that I turned out to enjoy, like Citizen Kane? Can I say it's a better movie? No. I can't, because this is The Empire Strikes Back. This is the best movie ever made. It's also the greatest sequel ever made. Yes. Because it improves on absolutely everything over the first movie. There is not a single aspect of that first movie that is not heightened, you know, um, expanded, or any of this stuff. Now, a lot of this has to come down to um, George Lucas, of course, but for those not in the know who don't know, who haven't watched the uh, Empire of Dreams documentary about... Ten times on the day. A documentary longer than any of the movies, by the way. <laughs> um, basically, between, like, basically during the course of New Hope and, and certainly before Empire Strikes Back was everything, George Lucas suspected he was on the verge of having a heart attack from all the stress. Yep. So he essentially didn't want to go through the ringer again because there was actually a lot more riding on the Empire Strikes Back. He essentially self-funded it because 
he wanted to keep all of his his rights and his credit to all himself and wanted to do exactly how he wanted without studio interference. He basically bankrolled the thing off the all the toy money from the first one. But knowing how badly he was affected by the first movie, nearly killing him, he elected not to do it. And he had to find somebody to step in. He turned to his old film teacher, Irving Kirshner. Now, Irving Kirshner was already a director before this. I've never seen any of his previous movies, of course. But it was actually him that sat in the chair. The guy that taught George Lucas took over George Lucas's thing. Also, of course, on the writing chair, you had Lawrence Kasdan as well. Yes. So, George Lucas is usually thought of to have directed all of them. We, of course, know he didn't, but... That's the thing. The best Star Wars movie was not made by George Lucas. It wasn't. Well, it was wasn't it was wholly. It wasn't wholly written by him. I, no. He probably had say here and there. But Lawrence Kasdan made the best script of all time, and, and Irving Kershner directed the best movie of all time. A dot of the half to you, Mister Irving Kershner. Um, well, let's let's get into this. Is the thing with Star Wars Episode Four? It's such a cut and dry story that doesn't bear us talking about it. Everyone knows it. And since we covered most of the characters in that first one, we can kind of look at some different things. So, of course, we open with maybe the greatest opening in cinema history. Oh, the, the Battle ba- of Hoth. Battle of Hoth, yes. Not on mine. Just quick aside, Nightcrawler's attack on the White House in X-Men 2 is actually my favourite opening to a movie ever. This is a close second, though. <laughs> um, because you get thrown in straight with a battle a battle we didn't actually have in the first one a ground battle yeah we had a space battle in, in, in New Hope but we didn't actually see the Empire's ground forces of course led by the iconic but really kind of stupid Atat yeah because the big to... metal camel you look at that thing and you think that is not practical in any way shape or form it's incredible yes it's powerful but it only has about a 10 degree movement in the head where all and only guns are. <laughs> so if you go to the side of him, if you stand here outside of his peripheral vision, they can't get you. They've got to pop the hat and shoot you. Also, they're slow. Incredibly they might be painful, slow. but they're slow. And legs are just not better than wheels. No. Legs can be tripped, as we see here. Yeah. If there's like a, you know, some rocky terrain that isn't dead flat, the attack can't get up that. He'll fall over. <laughs> that said... Stupid and impractical as they are, they're still incredibly cool to look at. They're still probably one of the most menacing war machines that the Imperial oh, yeah. Army does have. Because just in terms of scale, the the the, the rebellion's got nothing on that scale in any of the movies. It's just basically ground troops. Yeah, they've got the snow speeders, but even those are they're smaller than the ATSTs. Yeah, you know what I mean. So again, nice juxtaposition of you always want the rebels to seem, even though they landed a particularly big blow against the Empire, they're still outnumbered. They're still outgunned. This is a great way to show that. Taking out a practical mind, taking out a practical hat yeah. off. Because you, you see the growth of the Rebel Alliance. Because you don't, you you see a room full of them in the war room at the end of of New Hope. Now you see an entire base full of them, and they still can't outgun the Empire. These readers give a great sense of scale as to the, the type of threat that you're dealing with in this movie. It's actually one of the greatest war series ever made, the Star Wars series, because. You see the planning that involved. It's not just you're on the front line. You are on the front line of a lot of it, but you see a lot of the planning. You see a lot of the you know the forward command post with all the maps and everything. It really helps add to that sense of scale. And you're right, it makes the Rebel Alliance seem bigger, but at no point do you think they're on level peggings with the Empire. They're still very much the underdog of the situation. So yeah, Hoth. Iconic, beautiful. You get to see the snow troopers. The, you know, the Empire's changing up their game. They're more adaptable than you kind of fly by your seat to your pants rebels using well, all the... I'm pretty sure the only thing that like Han Solo had was just a thicker coat and that was it yeah 
essentially kill the Wookiee. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Smart move. Um, whilst we're talking about Hoth, and very early on you get a sense that not only is this a greater sequel than you know than its previous thing, but something it does do very right and it does improve and expand upon is the comedy. The humour yes. in this movie is way better than than in New Hope because in New Hope you pretty much relied on the droids. In this movie, you've got excellent banter between our three main leads again. Yes, you've got quite memorable. <coughs> excuse me, quite memorable lines like laughing up fuzzball, scruffy-headed nerve herder, yep. stuff like that. And these come in what could otherwise be quite boring scenes because it's just it's just three people who have worked together just meeting up again and going, oh, hey, we're all still alive. Well, this was the thing. Irving Kirshner's three, like, worries of this movie was he wanted to make it funnier, but he couldn't have gags. He couldn't have slapstick, for example. He wanted a romance angle because he felt that was lacking and that would help mature the series, but he couldn't have anything too mushy. And, of course, the Yoda problem, which we'll touch on in a moment. But uh, in terms of the first box to tick, yeah, comedy. The only thing you really have in New Hope is the... We're fine now, how are you? Yeah, which was improvised. Improvised. That's basically all you have in the first one. It's not a comedy by any means. It never stretches that, but it's funnier. And that helps the characters become more three-dimensional. They are a bit... Again, the scripts are never good in Star Wars. This is as close as we get to like an actually like good script. Yeah, yeah. which again is, is, is a refreshing thing because Lawrence Kasdan did work on this, and we do know that Lawrence Kasdan's working on Force Awakens. Yes! yes. It felt more naturalistic, the dialogue in this one. It felt like actual conversations were going on instead of, you know, line reading. So as opposed to exposition. Exactly. Um, much better done. And that leads us to, you know, uh, Evan Kirshner's second worry, the romance angle. You couldn't imagine a romance blooming out of New Hope's script. You couldn't. It was too stilted. In and, this one... And, of course, could bear in mind, like you said last last time, nobody thought that Star Wars was going to get a sequel. No. So they didn't, they didn't consider anything outside of, we've saved the princess, now what? Mm-hmm. So, whereas in this one, you get the Romans. The Romans that we all wanted, because obviously they hint at the Luke and Leia thing, which we all know how bad a mistake that is. No, like, no, no. Again, that's because George Lucas just hadn't decided they were brother and sister yet, which means he put the line, there is another in there, without knowing who the other Skywalker was at the yeah. time. So this thing that he had all 12 pieces retake beforehand has always kind of irked me. as Did he? <laughs> Did he really? Um, that aside, so yeah, we get to talk about the, the the blossoming love of Han Solo and Leia and just how, considering they don't get a, they get a lot of screen time together in this movie, but it's not a, it's not like they're the main focus. There's a lot of going a lot going on around them, and yet it still feels genuine. Yeah, it does. It does. A lot of people would say that it is possibly tacked on or out of place, but it is. It's a genuine romance. These people do find love in. To quote Rihanna, no, they don't. do find love in a hopeless place. They're surrounded on all sides, and yet the person they're most attached to is the person they probably despise the most, really. You see them bickering, and in a beat, they go from arguing to each other to being madly in love and passionately kissing each other. It's a bit... But but you get it. No, you get it. I'm not saying it's bad. And that it is love. Bad. Love is a, a weird and wonderful and crazy and odd thing that can't be contained or stopped or anything. And that's... Uh, so those people that say oh, it's out of place... Hate. Yes. Those people that say it's out of place, I disagree with vehemently. This needed to happen. Because otherwise, I, I think... Love has to play a part in any emotional 
emotionality. Um, <laughs> it has to be there. And I think Luke and Leia... Luke's on a very different path at this point. From the outset, he's a Jedi Master. That's where he's going. He has too much on his plate. These two getting put together, it actually boosts their, you know, credibility in the movie. Then they're, they're no longer supporting that character as they kind of were in the first one. Well, I mean, you, like like you say, you look at the path these three are taking. Like, from the, from the outset, you had a farmhand, a bounty hunter, and a princess. Mm-hmm. Now you have a fledgling Jedi Knight, a commander of a rebel alliance, and a le- leader of a fleet. Mm-hmm. These are what these people are going to become. Yeah. And, and because, like you say, because the path of the Jedi Knight is so scarce and so dangerous because of what's happened in previous movies... Because we've only got three Force-sensitive people... Sorry, four Force-sensitive people alive left in this movie. Technically, Leia's Force-sensitive, so it's five. No, that is, that is including Leia. Luke, Leia, Darth, Yoda. Oh, sorry, Sidious. Sidious yeah, yeah. So, yeah, five. Exactly. I think this turns two supporting characters into... From, for Empire and Jedi, there's very much free lead. Yes. Especially when we get to the end of Jedi, there is very much free lead characters as opposed to one lead character and two supports. Um, now, a little bit of con- we talked about George Lucas's um, opinions towards women. It seems in the, in, in the original <laughs> or trilogy, rather lack thereof, and all three of them in the first trilogy. <laughs> um, the other major criticism levelled against the first one: very white. Yeah, and we're not just talking about the stormtroopers. Incredibly white. In fact, they were saying that the only um, person of colour in the original movie is Darth Vader. <laughs> Who's actually a white person, yeah, but being voiced by being voiced by Jangle <laughs> yeah. So it is said by some that the character we're about to talk about was only added to kind of tick that box and to get the heat off of him. It just happens that that the whole the whole riff on dare I use the word black exploitation yes. that that this character was also became possibly the coolest character in the galaxy. You see Han Solo and you think he's cool, but he's cooling like that kind of... I know he gets the girl, but you, you, you see him more of like a cool under pressure, devil may care, blast his way out of the room. Lando looks like he could have sex with anybody he wanted to. And probably Because Lando did. Calrissian is the smoothest man in the entire galaxy. So what were the other names? Like We were writing some lists down the other night of our favourite <laughs> characters and we put some eth- <laughs> some fantastic um, names for Lando Lando Space Pimp Calrissian. <laughs> yeah! <laughs> that was a good one. Because he's just the smoothest man alive. You Inter- are charmed instantly. Lando by International Mother Effa Calrissian. Yes. <laughs> Intergalactic I, mother effort. I, I, I don't care if he was a a token addition. I really don't care because um, Billy D. Williams is fantastic. I know he's not meant to be in the new one, but if he doesn't turn back up in episode 8 or 9, I'm going to kick the F off because we need to see where Lando ended. Side note. Side note. He has appeared in Star Wars Rebels. Awesome. Which is good. Is he still a space pimp? He's still a space... It's Lando Calrissian. When is he not a space space pimp? pimp. I love Lando Calrissian. Yeah, considering you don't get a lot of time with him, he's a very nuanced character. He's very complex when you come down to it. He is. He... he, he, You can tell he's cut from the same cloth as um, Han. By the way, if they're doing a Han Solo movie, it has to be a Han and Lando buddy cop movie. Oh, dude. It has to be. (laughs) When I was writing down my list of of spin-offs, I was like, right, 
I like the idea of doing a Qui-Gon Jinn and Mace Windu spin-off, like a young Jedi, you know, you put them both in the Jedi school at the same time and see that. But I was like, that is dwarfed by him, which I want to see Han and Lando take on the galaxy. <laughs> Basically, I want lethal weapon <laughs> in space. <laughs> yes, that is, please. That is, that is all I want in my Le- head. Rush hour in space. space. <laughs> <laughs> um, Any so you, you, you So you're instantly... The fact they're cut from the same cloth, that actually builds a lot of character for him like instantly in your mind. You know he's basically Han Solo 2.0. He is. But he's more institutional, uh, institutionalised, that's the word I'm looking for, because he is a resident of Bespin. This is the yeah. place you go to. He is the embodiment of Cloud City. He is also, unfortunately, a pawn in the Empire's game. He's a smart man. Oh, he's very smart And he's man. a good man, eventually. But he's looking out for number one. He's doing what... You'd think Han Solo would have done prior to the events of the first movie. Han Solo probably would have done something better in the situation of Lando. But luckily, despite his, you know, selling out his best friend to the Empire to basically save a city's worth of people, not a, you know, you see why he made the decision. It's not like he was just a dick. He still gets to redeem himself. Yeah. Which is probably for the best that they didn't then get a second black guy in it and then make him an absolute arsehole. Well, it was, it was like, because um, wasn't the Falcon originally yeah. his ship? And then he's like, he's like, I'm back in the Falcon, this is cool. And we're like, no, it's not your ship. But you do feel better about Lando being the one who gets to fly the Falcon away at the end to go and round up the rest of the Rebel fleet. You know he had some good nights on that Falcon. Good Lord. I can only imagine that... <laughs> Well, what have we here? Oh, he's a smooth man. If I can't uh, be Han Solo, I think I'd be Lando. <laughs> uh, to quote Star-Lord, because you know that Star-Lord has some uh, themes of Lando and Han Solo running through yes, as he was written. Again, no movie exists without Star Wars. If you turned on a blacklight and here it looked like a Jackson Pollock painting. That's Lando <laughs> on the Falcon. That's where those dice came from in the cockpit. Possibly. The, uh, <laughs> you know Lando put them there. Well, he's one of, of two, sorry, one of three um, kind of major characters that have gone on to have live outside of these movies that were introduced um, in uh, The Empire Strikes Back. We'll talk about the other, well, we'll talk about the bad guy first. Um, Boba Fett. Yeah. Now, as I mentioned in episode two, I prefer his dad, Jango Fett, to Boba Fett. And that is because I've never really understood the appeal of original trilogy Boba Fett. Here's the thing. Mm. Having, having known this... Again, the, these podcasts are littered with Star Wars trivia. The reason that everybody likes Boba Fett is because people saw the suit design in promotional material. Once again, the ever-reaching hand of the merchandise comes into play. People saw this interestingly designed Mandalorian bounty hunter in toy form and on the side of cups for some reason and instantly got hooked. They wanted to know more about this guy. They wanted to see this guy in action. Boba Fett would probably be, have, without those merchandise and things happening, would probably be as memorable as IG-88. Mm-hmm. Do you know who IG-88 Well, obviously you know I know who IG-88 I, there's a question to who's listening. Do you know who IG-88 is? Or Dengar. In one, or Dengar. Like, nobody knows who these people are. There are like six bounty hunters in this movie. But you remember Boba Fett. I understand that he's very cool looking. I give him that. But let's actually look at his, like, usefulness. Yes, he does end up catching... He does track, successfully track Han Solo. 
But he doesn't really do much in The Empire Strikes Back. He mountains about getting his pay and kind of walks around Bespin a bit and shoots a bit and he's got a cool ship. He's a bodyguard for more. His actual bounty huntering skills are paled in comparison to Django Fett, exactly. who actually does go and do bounty hunter things. That's the thing. You see, you see Django Fett take on a take on Obi Wan Kenobi to a stalemate. They evenly match. Yes, Mace Windu messes him up at the end of Episode Two, but you know Django still stalemate is a Jedi. And in the expanded universe, Boba Fett does that. And I understand his appeal there, but then you get to the movie after this. He's even more useless. He's comically useless in the last one. So I've never really understood. I understand, but at the same time, I don't understand the appeal of Bob. You get that he's just the embodiment of cool because he's a cool-looking space guy, but when you consider the lore, he's not that impressive. No. Um, But he's another embodiment of the movie. He's he's visual design. He looks great. He does look cool. He looks like a cooler Darth Vader sometimes, to be fair. Yeah. He's got a jetpack and a missile. He never fires, <laughs> and then of course we have to get into the other um, one, the Yoda problem, the single most important character not to mess up in movie history, because I've I've saw Irvin Kershner talk about Yoda. They wanted to do a Jedi Master. He went through thousands of revisions. He ended up being based on the guy that was trying to draw him's head. And he said, well, it kind of looks okay, but I'm going to draw the Einstein wrinkles onto him. And Irvin Kirshner was worried because, obviously, they got it to be a puppet. They got it done by um, um, Jim Henson Studios, the um, the Muppets guy. And he was worried that he was essentially going to be Kermit in a Jedi robe. I understand his worry. Judge me by my size, do you? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Couldn't help myself. And I understand all the worries, but they were for naught. For he actually brought to screen... My favourite character in all of Star Wars. Ah, he's... Yoda is wonderful. Because, again, like Lando, he is multi-layered. And now that we've got the prequel trilogy, we know exactly what kind of a man Yoda is. One of the strongest... He's not a man. You know what I mean. Like, one of the... Quick fact. Oh, go on. He's actually... Yoda's species has never been explored in anything. Or been named. Or been named. He's just known as Yoda's species. We've yeah. only seen Yaddle as the only other one in <laughs> Yaddle. He was the one who was slightly bigger and paler. She. She was slightly bigger and paler. Yes. And that's it. So, yeah, they... One of the... Because we know about the twist ending of... Um, but there's also the great twist. When you watch this as a kid and you don't know who Yoda is, the first time you watch this, you're just thinking... Who's this stupid frog man? Yeah. Looking for someone. Found someone I think you have. You're like, just get out the way. We're looking for Yoda. And he's there. He's smacking R2 with his stick and stealing torches. And stealing food. And then which, food. Which and then, always irked me a And then you bit. get that wonderful finger in the house when he's looking out the window and Luke's moaning behind him as Luke often does. And he just gives the sign. And he goes, I cannot teach him. And then it's like, oh. oh. And just me by my size. Do you? Do you? is one of those greatest lines because from that moment on you don't judge him by his size you understand his power especially when he moves the X-Wing yeah that is when you're like that's when you get that mysticism that's been lacking since I do, I do want to come back to lifting the X-Wing in a second but, but it's the fact that for a puppet for a performance to change is mm. unbelievable especially for the time that this movie was made like we're talking like end of the 70s start of the 80s yeah practical effects are pretty much the only way you can do it. To have practical effects still look good 30 years later is nigh on impossible. Because 
you, again, you see movies in this time period, you see them using similar technologies, and you don't believe it. But there is so, you just almost instantly, yes, there are some times when he's like holding something a bit weird, or you see the kind of, you know, the puppet. The bobbing, yeah. Of the bobbing of, um, of Frank Oz underneath him. By the way, little, little trivia again, they had to build the entire Dagobah set five foot off the floor. So that Frank Oz could get underneath it and like fair um, play to Frank Oz, fair play to the man. Um, but um, what was I, was I going to say? That was it. He goes from this erratic, weird, strange alien, and like you said, in one swoop goes and one side becomes stoic and be, and becomes the, the Jedi, the Jedi that you know he is. There is no more mythical character in all of Star Wars than Yoda. Of just like again, moving the X-wing with one hand. Shows you the power of what the Jedi could be. And the best pimp slap comment of all time. And yet and yet one that I think is genuinely one of the greatest lessons that Star Wars teaches people. It's like the the fact that like Luke is trying to raise the extra like, no, you have to believe yes. in the force. And and like he's no, I can't do it, I can't lift it out. And Yoda just without effort slowly raises his hand, lifts the X Wing, puts it down. Luke says, I don't believe it. And Yoda that says is why you that is why you fail. What a wonderful lesson. What a wonderful insult. Exactly. He is just one of the absolute... He sits at number two of my all-time favourite characters of all time. Ian Malcolm slightly beating it. But, yeah, there is absolute... For how wrong it could have been, for how much it could have been Kermit on the set of Star Wars, they couldn't have hit it out of the park anymore. Again, that wouldn't have worked, would it? That, that's why you fail. <laughs> Really would have gone bad. Um, but of course, Luke's time with Yoda is relatively short. Um, he has to go off and fly to Bespin to save his friends because he sees them being in trouble. And of course, they are in trouble because Darth Vader catches them and he decided that he's going to wait out Luke and put him in carbonite, but they need a test subject. Which leads us to one of the most iconic moments in all of Star Wars, Han Solo being lowered into the carbonite pit. And, and this is like... An image that's so iconic that people are willing to pay tens of thousands of pounds to have a fridge shaped like a carbonite. I would so totally have a carbonite fridge if my ass could afford it. I know, right? <laughs> I'd, have, I'd have five. I'd have one in every room. <laughs> my bedroom. That would be slightly terrifying, though, just it's waking still, up every morning was like, to an effigy of Harrison Ford. Just, Harrison Ford's only face would be, ah, just being rammed up his, ah. Right up his ham. <laughs> like he was mid-grope and then, ah. Um... Of course, it comes with the iconic line, ad lib line, no less. Ad lib. In the original script, as it's been lowered down, it's just a simple, I love you, I love you. But Irving Kirshner and Harrison Ford were like, this isn't Han Solo. So he just once said, right, roll cameras, do what you want, go. Yeah. I love you. I'm... I know. Mm. And at that point, he becomes the mandiest man who ever manned. <laughs> yeah. Because there's a lot going on in that. If you pick it apart like we've done to a, you know, anal degree of like just, that is him not wanting to you know, show weakness in front of the Empire, but also not break Leia's heart by saying I love you too, possibly before he's about to die. Because then she has to live with the fact that this unrequited love for her uh, entire life. So it's all these many things into just two words. And again, considering that's ad-lib, that's a lot of... What a stroke of genius that was in like five seconds to come with the absolute perfect embodiment of all of Han Solo's character right there and then. Um, now, of course... This was done because Mark Hamill and Carrie Fisher and basically all the rest of the cast 
had signed on for three movies, but Harrison Ford had only signed on for two. Yep. So they weren't entirely sure that he was coming back for Return of the Jedi. And Harrison Ford himself actually lobbied for Han Solo to die. This was basically a way to kind of... This was basically the Schrodinger's hand, so that he could be <laughs> Schrodinger's both... Schrodinger's hand! He could be both alive and dead, depending on whether Harrison Ford came back, whether they wanted to take the storyline, that kind of dark. Um, ultimately, it didn't happen because George Lucas wanted the happy ending. Harrison Ford has always agreed that it was the right decision, he shouldn't have been killed, but... What do you think? Could they have killed Han Solo trying to give that Return of the Jedi just that last... It wouldn't have, it wouldn't have benefited the trinity of characters that we have no. to see them at the end victorious over the empire mm-hmm. at the end of return of the jedi for those three characters despite several deaths of people along the way like obi-wan like like yoda, like yoda and for them to be there having triumphed over the empire these three young heroes to have killed one of them off would have felt bittersweet can you imagine luke and leia reuniting at the end mm-hmm. A man having lost his best friend, a woman having lost the love of her life. Yeah. I think it would have cast a shadow of a Jedi that there would have been hard... Because you would have had to kill them off at the start, I think. Because if he wasn't coming back, Harrison Ford would not have been available. No. They would literally have to have C-3PO go up to the Carbonite slab and say, oh, he's dead. Um, Basically. He'd probably say in a bit more foppish nature, as his <laughs> C-3PO's want. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that would that would have cast a shadow. That, again, this is this is a series meant for kids. Obi-Wan and Yoda, that's kind of, again, the grandparents' analogy. Whereas Han Solo, that's just a bit too close to home. So I am agreeing with you. It shouldn't have happened. It didn't happen. And we have that kind of half ending. That's where that happens. And then Luke flies in. He's in Bespin. We all know it's coming. That, no, no, no. Can we talk more about this scene before we go straight to the fight? Go on. The scene in which Luke comes into Cloud City... Let's forget him storming down the corridors and evading the stormtroopers that aren't supposed to find him. Mm -hmm. Because it's all a ploy. It's when he enters the carbonite chamber. And you've got the wonderful lighting of the blue contrasting against the orange. Mm -hmm. There's that shot of Luke, blaster in hand, looking around, sensing something in the force. Holstering the blaster because he knows it won't do any good. As he reaches for his lightsaber, behind him, Vader's already appeared. Mm-hmm. Luke already full of like arrogant confidence because he thinks he can be a Jedi already, even though yeah. he's not done the training, he's not devoted his life. Sparks up his lightsaber, Vader his, and what I think, maybe, maybe not the best lightsaber battle of all time, but certainly the most important, the most emotional lightsaber battle between an incomplete Luke Skywalker Jedi Master... And a still very powerful Darth Vader that only becomes... And you start to see, later on in this scene, you start to see Darth Vader as Darth Vader and mm-hmm. not just a pawn of the Empire. You start to see he's got his own agenda. Yeah, He very much doesn't want the Emperor or anybody else involved in the Empire to have control. He and his son, that's all he wants... That's all, like, join me, join my regime. Don't join the Empire. That's the, that's the plan, but you work for me. I am the centre of the galaxy. Mm-hmm. That is perfect. It's just perfect. There's no other way around it. From the moment that, walk, that Luke walks into the Carbonite Chamber and that fight begins and you learn more about how these two characters are related, it's... It's poetry. It's it's the best bit. It's excellent. You've summed up very perfectly there, Michael. It is perfect. There is so much things going on there that we could, you know, overanalyze. 
the hubris of Luke Skywalker thinking he could take on Darth Vader. Just the the never overt but the understood authority of Darth Vader that he's just they're not even in the same league. The you know the league can be even further apart. It's conference versus Premier League because. I don't know how to, you've kind of done it all the work there, Michael. I can't really add to it more. <laughs> well, shall just, we just talk about the twist? Well, give me a second. Okay. Because, yeah, you, you, you feel that sense of dread building you when you realise that Luke really can't stand up to him. He's going to need a fluke. A fluke. Fluke Skywalker. <laughs> and it never comes. And of course, when the hand goes, you're like, oh. Because. Oh. You think, again, you're thinking this is, a, this is a kid's movie. This is meant to be happy and joyful. And that's why Empire Strikes Back really works, because they... Right, Avengers Sith went whole hog with the dourness. Because it had to. It's the yeah, low it, point it of the series. it had to. Empire Strikes Back... If, right, so if you take the whole of Star Wars as the, as the curve, uh, Avengers Sith is the bottom. If you take just the original trilogy, this has to be your act two misery before the act three kind of redemption. So, yeah... Hands off. He's awful. No miracle is coming. You are that rising end of dread. And that's when they hit you with the greatest twist in movie history. Ruined for almost anybody who hasn't seen it if they've watched basically anything else. Because everybody and their mums relies on, you know, this line. But yeah, he's down there. He's lying down. Quick bit of trivia before we get there. Actually, no. We'll say the line first. Of course, you know, it's I am your father. Not Luke, I am your father. No, it's no. I am your father. No! It's not true! It's possible! Search your feelings, you know it to be true. No! No. Quick note, Mm. can you imagine being Darth Vader, having found your child, and him being distraught to find out that he's like... Well, you did lop his hand off. Yes. His right hand as well. (laughs) His left hand, you know. Oh dear. (laughs) It went there. He could hold his lightsaber with the other one, if you know what I mean. Anywho's up. Little trivia fact for you, fact fans. Um, that's sc- that line was not actually ever in the script. It so was, that nobody um, knew the, the twist. To to hide the the twist from everybody, only five people knew the actual line, which was uh, Mark Hamill, James Earl Jones, George Lucas, Irving Kirshner, and the director. Um, the, sorry, the the editor. Um, in the script, because obviously they had David Prowse who was in the Darth Vader costume. He said all the lines. And his line was, Obi-Wan killed your father. Luke and Luke was told prior to it happening, so Mark Hamill was told it prior to happening, so he could have the correct reaction. And yeah. it looks, you know, you replace the two lines, that you can start that type of reaction. That's how it was kept secret. That's something that is very hard to do in oh, modern times. Could you imagine that? I know. Being, being told that. That means Harrison Ford and Carrie Fisher found that out Whilst they were in the premiere at the Chinese Grossman, the Grossman Chinese Theatre in LA, they watched that happen for the first time. It's like, oh my god! <laughs> James Earl Jones thought he was lying, and that's how he played it. He was like, oh, he's telling a lie there. I'm going to make it seem like he's, you know, telling a fib. Just, and that is something that has never been replicated because we're so we want to know everything about a movie before it comes out, and we're all guilty of this. We all watch yeah. the rewind trailers and try and pick apart every little detail to almost ruin it for themselves and that's why I've taken to not watching anything from the new movie because I want to maintain as much of it for that cinema going experience could you imagine if if the if the Empire Strikes Back was made today and it looks it leaks Obi-Wan kills Luke's father and then you get in there 
And it's, oh God. And could you imagine that? We'll point out, I actually guessed, um, before I ever watched Empire Strikes Back, ITV were playing them one after another. This is the first time I ever watched them. I was about six or seven. I watched New Hope and I said, well, they keep mentioning Luke's father. I could, I was in my front room that I'm now pointing to for the benefit of Annie Michael. I, sat, <laughs> I could take it to the chair I was sat on. My mum was doing the ironing. And I said, well, they keep mentioning his father. His father's not dead, is he? And my mum, you know, not was like, well, maybe. And I said, is it Darth Vader? <laughs> <laughs> so I was trying to point out, I actually guessed the twist ending. So I'm smarter than all you people back in the 80s who didn't guess. Yeah, but, but of course, it's also a film so ingrained in pop culture anyway that yeah, everybody I probably knows. heard it on something before. Yeah. yeah, this is the problem. My girlfriend just watched it. She knew it was coming and it kind of loses something. But if you watch this as pure and tainted as me and you did, one of the greatest moments in cinema history. Totally. By far the best twist in cinema history. But... And now we know the very scene that sets into motion the sequel trilogy. Who'd have thunk it? What? The, the, the Luke's lightsaber. What about Luke's lightsaber? Okay, forget it. Shh, you, you nearly spoiled something then. Shh, forget it. I'm going to kill you, forget Michael. Forget it, forget it, forget it, forget it, forget it. Okay, we've forgotten that interlude into the trilogy that I know nothing about. Whoops. Arse. I thought you... You, you watched it. It was in the that. original ship teaser. Jab. It was. Whoop. Conclusion. <laughs> so it's, it's still the best movie ever made. The very fact that we can overanalyze the movie to that extremity. The very fact that we know all this trivia. The very fact that it is... And once again, much like the film that came before it, the archetype of the perfect sequel. A film which hasn't been bested, nope. shall not be bested, nope. ever. Because it is the best movie ever made. It's the best sequel ever made. It's the best sci-fi movie ever made. It contains one of the best lines of dialogue, the best twists, the best fights, the best characters, the best romance, the best... It's the best. There's no other words for it. It's just the best. It's a bacon, egg, sausage and tomato. Oh, yes. It's the best. I don't actually like that sandwich. I don't like it in tomato. But that's it regardless <laughs> of my point. Yeah, um, the absolute embodiment of movie-going perfection. It crosses all types of cinema-going audiences. You've got drama, romance, a bit of comedy, never overstated, but enough to keep you going. And doom. Action, dread, the works. An absolute perfect sequel, an absolute perfect setup for what's to come next. Perfect. This, again, this is the problem. We can overanalyze the movie. When it comes to this point, you just have to go, yeah, it's 10 out of 10. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of boringly perfect again. <laughs> it's annoying how George Lucas keeps doing this. <laughs> so, yeah, a doff of the hat to um, the greatest movie of all time. This sets us up for the... This is a penultimate episode of our Star Wars Week podcast. Tomorrow, we round it all out with my third favourite movie of all time, Return of the Jedi. Awesome. Again, today, what you can also watch is our video on over on our YouTube channel, which is the top ten moments in Star Wars history. We might have already spoiled the top one, unfortunately, mm-hmm. uh, considering that we just dissected it yeah. to the great extent that we did. <coughs> and, of course, if you haven't already, you can go and watch yesterday's stuff, which was our review of A New Hope. And, of course, a video on the top ten characters in Star Wars history. Again, we've talked about a lot of them here. Funnily enough, because it's the greatest trilogy of all time. So, plug away. You can find me on Twitter, at The Guttridge. You can also check out my website, www.theguttridge.co.uk. 
Many a Star Wars thing are on there now. I don't know what they are, but they're there and they're good because I wrote them. Michael? Yeah, you have a lot of dandruff, I, I noticed. Know, like, <laughs> I was gonna... just accumulating throughout the thing. Sorry about that. And of course, you can go to farmstainment.com for all of the Star Wars goodness this week as we are only two days away <laughs> from The Force Awakens. <laughs> Holy crap, it's palpable. Uh, Palpatine. Palpatine, ah! Funnily enough, he's next. And of course, every social media imaginable, we are Foul ENT, that's Foul E-N-T. Join us tomorrow for the final part of Star Wars <laughs> Week. Before we do enter a new generation, how about that? I know. Oh my god. When we revisit this in ten years' time, we're going to have to have well, three whole new podcasts, whole new worlds Yay. discovered, all these characters just ingrained into us. But for now, there's only six movies, and of course we have to finish things off tomorrow. With what I said is my third favourite movie of all time, The Return of the Jedi. We'll see you then. Thanks very much for listening and bye-bye.